I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Robin Pierce from the History of Byzantium podcast. Brian Stitt. The host and producer of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Jen McMenemy, ancient history fangirl. Samuel Hansen, host of the podcast Relatively Prime Stories. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Jamie Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. David Petrusha. Eric from Reconsider. I'm Eric Marcus. Jenny Williamson. Zachary Davis. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Intelligent Speech 2019 in New York City was a blast, and I am thrilled to announce that I will be back again for 2020. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it'll be online this year at intelligentspeechconference.com. Intelligent Speech is an online conference that brings together the best educational podcasts and their listeners, and it is taking place this year online only at intelligentspeechconference.com from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on June 27, 2020. There will be approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters available that day presenting a wide range of topics as well as roundtable debates from several of us. And listeners will be able to fully participate online, including being involved in Q&As with all the presenters and more. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. So for more details, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and see you there on June 27th. We shall never surrender. This will be an event that you don't want to miss, so I hope to virtually see you there at Intelligent Speech 2020. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic. This is the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what we do normally. Everybody knows what my politics is. Um, I have, I've been doing this show for, what, some, some six years and I'm very left of centre. But I see myself as non-tribal. I like to reach out the, uh, the hand of friendship to people who bat for the other side politically. 
I only really have no truck with uh, racists and fascists, uh, but fundamentally anybody else who's to the to the left of that, I see as uh, potentially a brother in arms. However, I had to check myself a couple of weeks ago because I have a new best friend and it's Ian Dale. And for people outside of the UK, uh, you might not know the name, but if you follow UK politics, you'll absolutely know the name. Well, Northern Ireland is staying in the customs union. Well, yeah. So why should there be any, why should there be any <laughs> disruption to trade to Northern Ireland then? Because you're re you're removing the freedom of access that there is at the moment. No, you're not. Because Northern Ireland is staying in the customs union, so that there is no a version of it. But the details haven't no, no, been no. worked out, no, and actually, it's not they're clear. Staying, they're staying in the single market and the customs union. I'm very surprised you don't know that. They're not staying in the single market, yes, actually. Yes, they are actually. No, um, that it's the a, a version of the EU customs union, but it there's there. Boris Johnson is calling it a UK customs union, so it's actually not clear. Uh, what the ramifications of that would be. Well, the ramifications are that Northern Ireland is effectively in both, so that when we make trade agreements with other countries, uh, Northern Ireland will be included in them, which would not have been the case under Theresa May's deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't be half in, half out, and and this is well, the problem with this lack of clarity. I mean... Well, there the, is, I suggest that after we finish this interview, you go and read the actual agreement, because you clearly haven't done so, otherwise you would have been able to answer these questions. Ian, historically, if not now anyway, and Ian, tell me if I'm wrong, was a avowed Tory pundit, and he ran to be a Member of Parliament some time ago. And as ecumenical as I see myself when it comes to, to politics, even though I followed him on Twitter, it's kind of somewhat slightly begrudgingly. <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, um, through uh, a whole load of reasons I won't bore you with, listener, we, we ended up talking and I invited him to come on to Mid-Atlantic. But before we actually did that show, we had a conversation. And they always say that when you point the finger at somebody, there's like three pointing back at you. And I realised that with my conversation with Ian Dale. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. First off, you tripped me up when we spoke the other day by saying, I said, you're a Tory. How can you be a Tory, which means conservative? Uh, you are a conservative. How can you be conservative and gay? And you said, I'm not even necessarily a conservative. I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. When did that happen? When did you see the light, Ian? <laughs> it, it wasn't a question of seeing the light. It was when I got a job at LBC, um, which is uh, a talk radio station in, in Britain. I just felt it was inappropriate to continue being a member of a political party because I would be having to interview people from all across the, the spectrum. And I wasn't hiding my political background. Everyone knows that I'm, I'm on the right. But I just thought being inactive party politics is not really appropriate. So for 10 years now, I haven't been a member of the Conservative Party. And I find, it's a bit like you, I, I find myself being less tribal as I get older. And I, I, I still believe in fairly right of centre economic policies, and I don't resile from that at all. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think my social compass has moved to the left. Um, and it's partly because of doing the radio show where you talk to people day after day about different social issues, and that does alter your opinions somewhat. So I think I'm on the right economically, 
but broadly centre-left on a lot of social issues. Maybe not every single one, but I have much more liberal views on abortion, for example, than I used to have. Um, uh, on benefits and welfare and immigration, I am way to the left of how I used to be. I'm, I'm as wet as a lettuce on, on immigration. Um, I, I do believe that a country needs to control its borders, but um, I, I firmly believe that uh, we should be offering um, more people the chance to come to this country, particularly if, if they are asylum seekers, but also economic migrants. I have absolutely no problem with people wanting to come to this country to better their lives. But they've got to be able to better this country as, as well. Um, mm. So it's a bit of a... I mean, I would still predominantly vote Conservative, but I have voted for three other different parties over the last 10 years in different types of elections. So I, vote, I voted Green in one election. Mm -hmm. I voted uh, for the Brexit Party in the European elections last year. Uh, and I voted Liberal Democrat, mainly because I wasn't a Conservative candidate in the local elections. So um, I mean, it wasn't for the most positive of reasons. But yeah, I, I'm less tribal than I used to be. I think Brexit was maybe another reason, one of the reasons why I put you in the, um, I'm not really going to listen to what Ian Dale's saying camp. I, I am an internationalist and I don't see that as a pejorative. So, so am I actually. Well, but it's, it's become, that word has become like a pejorative is to say I'm an international banker and I've got offshore funds squirreling money from one account to another and I'm part of the problem and, and not part of the solution. So I spend six months of my year in California and I actually see that as my home. I spend three months of my year actually in Toronto with, with my kids and it's maybe only two months of the year back, back in the UK. It was strange in many ways for me to lead the life that I've been living in the last five years with not spending much time in the UK and how I felt like the country that I love, because I do love England, and I say, and I say England as opposed to Britain, though I quite like the Union Jack, I quite like the United Kingdom, but I love England. And it felt to me like what I was seeing and hearing wasn't the country that I knew. So to hear your nuanced position on Brexit, when I filtered it in, filtered it through, was a revelation because even in this conversation, you've said you're quite wet when it comes to immigration. Whereas people like me said that everybody that voted for Brexit was some kind of soft racist, if not an avowed out there, you know, yeah. Nazi swastika wearing Nazi, but actually they, they had lots of subconscious bias and subconscious racism. And it wasn't you that necessarily changed me of that ilk. It was my mother, who's a West Indian immigrant, Windrus generation, who voted for Brexit. I love you might be mother. putting words into your mouth. Why, tell me how you can be an internationalist, believe yet in border checks, but want immigration, but vote for Brexit. Because he's all about us having a well, conversation. It, it, it's very simple. I think you just bought into a la very lazy narrative that all Brexit people are racist right-wingers. And yeah. um, if you look at the figures of who actually voted for Brexit, um, a huge number of Labour Party voters voted for Brexit. 25% of Liberal Democrat voters voted for Brexit, which nobody ever remembers. And they are the most pro-EU party of all of them. Mm. Um, now, you don't have to find Britain in a union with the United States to spend nine months of the year 
in the United States. You don't, we don't have to be in a union, a political union with Canada for you to spend two months of the year in Canada either. I speak fluent German. I did my degree in German. I lived in Germany for two years. There is not an anti-European bone in my body. I, I mean, it's like you say some of my best friends are, are Germans, to, to coin a phrase. <laughs> so it's got nothing to do with being xenophobic. Now, for some people, I'm sure it was. I don't deny that there would be some. I mean, if you were xenophobic, you probably did vote for Brexit. I fully admit that. But if you look at the numbers of people who could be described as xenophobic, I mean, it, it's not a it's not a massive percentage of the electorate. I, I would hope. Um, although there was this poll out last week that showed that 52% of British people think that we live in a racist society. So who, who knows? Mm. Um, it's sort of love Europe, but hate the EU. That's the point. And I never always hated the EU. In the 1980s, I was doing debates for the European movement, arguing against the Labour Party as to why we should stay in the European econ economic community as it was then. I'm not, I've, I've never been wholly against the European Union. Um, but over the years, it's shown itself to be unreformable. And, and that was crystallised when David Cameron in 2016 tried to renegotiate our terms of membership and, and lamentably failed. And that was the point where I thought, I don't want to stay in an organisation that will never, ever change. The only way it changes is to embed itself more in a sort of European, uni a United States of Europe aim. And I don't want Britain to be in a United States of Europe. So that was the point when I decided to vote leave. Everyone thinks I must have been an avid Brexiteer since time immemorial. It's just not the case. I looked at the facts as I saw them, and that's, I made my decision. Now, I didn't actually publicly say so at the time, because this was three months before the referendum vote. And I thought I didn't think it was appropriate for me to take part as a participant in the campaign, because I had to interview both sides. Now, I mm. mean, if you look at my Twitter feed, it probably wasn't very difficult to work out which side I was going to vote for. But on the radio, I was straight down the middle and I only announced how I voted after the referendum, after the polls had closed on the 23rd of June. And ever since then, I've been kind of seen as one of these sort of ur-Brexiteers. Um, and I've done a lot of media on it because I asked a Newsnight producer once, why do you have me on so often? Uh, and they said, well, because we think of you as a thinking man's Brexiteer. And I, I roared with laughter at that. But I can kind of see the logic of that because there are, shall we say, rather too many foaming at the mouth Brexit representatives who do not actually, I think, put a, re a reason view forward. They, they can foam at the mouth and have rants and all the rest of it and are very good at it. But if you want to have a calm argument, there aren't actually that many people on the Brexit side of the argument who are capable of doing that. So um, I've kind of almost by accident found myself as one of the, um, I mean, if you compiled a sort of top 10 Brexit pundits, I suppose I would be somewhere in that, he said rather arrogantly. It's, me it's given me pause for thought and we need to exit out of Brexit because it's just done. Right? But, but it's, it's a good way of us to start our dialogue anyway. I fully now appreciate uh, the position of, of Margaret Thatcher, that she was in Europe, but always kicking and screaming on the edges. And actually, I appreciate the balancing act she actually did in the Tory party. Though, admittedly, in the 1980s and the early 1990s, yes, there was, um, you know, Bill Cash always wanted to be out. There always was that wing that never wanted that was to be... A small, there was a small group of them. Yes. That, that it was probably amounted to no more than 10 in the Tory party in the 80s and 90s, or may, maybe 10 or 15, 
who would have always wanted to leave because if you, I mean, when we joined, um, there were a huge number of Tory MPs who were against joining. There were a huge number of Labour MPs. Mm -hmm. to that. In fact, it was always the, the left was the dominant factor in Euroscepticism in the 70s yes. and 80s. Now, everyone forgets that now. And then, of course, they got Jeremy Corbyn elected, who was one of those people. Um, you think Tony Benn back in the day was also a, a devout Eurosceptic. Yeah. So it, it's very interesting how sometimes the left and right can meet on these issues. And, and as I said, that I, I really appreciate the Thatcher's position, and I, and I don't appreciate much about her time in, in, uh, in power. But that I do appreciate because I do believe in the European project as one of the bulwarks against war. You know, I'm as much as I'd like to see myself as somebody who know who, who's interested in politics. I'm much more interested in history. Um, and what she did was critical. I now realize at the time I didn't. She's always going to Brussels, and it was a case of up yours, Delors, on on the front of front of the the Sun newspaper, etc. But people like me on the left have to appreciate that there is a reason why people in England do feel apart from Europe. I'm not talking about our Scottish brethren and whatever. I put that slightly to one side, but for historical reasons, for reasons of geography, for right or wrong, we there is a strong strand of people within England who feel that not necessarily anti-Europe but apart from Europe and and that's what she embodied um, but then that takes me to another point and this is where again I have I have or had a reflexive kind of like lizard brain because my political education was the late 70s and the 80s and it's very much part of struggle. Anybody who is gay is very obviously and, and politically aware. That's the key thing for me. Politically aware has got to be politically left of centre. So um, this is the other thing which always confused me about you. It's a case of, well, I get it if you're hiding in a closet. But if you are avowedly out, surely you understand the history of minorities and struggle and political representation. Of course, if you're gay, you're going to be politically left of centre. I got that wrong with you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think this is a mistake that people on the left make. They automatically assume that any minority is theirs and theirs for life. Mm. If you look at the percentage of gay people that vote, or indeed... I mean, it's less so on, in some racial minorities, but certainly among gay people. In many elections, um, the, the gay vote often reflects more or less the rest of the country, and there's no reason why it shouldn't. And I've never understood this argument that anyone who's gay automatically has to be on the left. Um, if you are gay, you are, by definition, an individualist, I think, and therefore, naturally, you might be sort of aligned with the Conservative Party, which is kind of the party of the individual. Um, you believe in individual freedom. Um, I, I don't understand why everybody assumes that, that people automatically are on the left on these issues. Um, on, on a lot of economic issues, again, um, much more aligned with Conservative thinking than, than, than Labour thinking. Um, well, it's that um, question, Ian, though, isn't it, about... Uh, where morality and politics uh, 
collide because you're completely right. You can make a really strong argument for saying that all right of center politics economically is about the individual. So you go do whatever you want to do, but but aligned with that. Well, that, not that's not that, that's that's not conservative politics. That's libertarian politics, where it's it's everyone for themselves. Now, mm. I don't I don't believe that. I do believe in the in the individual, the freedom of the individual, but. With, there, there are limits to that. It's a bit like free speech. Um, I, I believe in free speech, but there are obviously some limits to free speech. So it's just de de defining where all those limits are. And I always think um, sort of right of centre politicians get that balance better than left of centre ones who, who tend to think that the state actually is the arbiter of all that is good and that the state is what can change everything and the individual hasn't got the influence that I, I actually think individuals have. It, for example, you look at the British Airways dispute at the moment. I mean, on my radio show tonight, I've got two hours on the future of aviation. Now, um, all of the British Airways cabin crew, they're about to be sacked. Now, we as consumers, as individual consumers, have the right, therefore, to withdraw our custom from British Airways. That is an individual decision to take. I don't think it's something for the state to get involved in. Whereas if you talk to left of centre politicians, oh, they, they want to change all the employment laws so British Airways can't do this sort of thing. Well, it, it is the consumer often that regulates these big companies by, by deciding, OK, well, I'm not going to fly with you anymore. I think that kind of gets to the heart of what we had, what, what we talked about in our conversation. And I will freely and utterly admit that being um, a lefty, uh, though I, I don't know how far left I am, I have no idea, uh, but there's been this realignment of British politics, of uh, which the Brexit debate really did highlight that you can be, and you've said it, you are economically right of centre, but in social issues, you're, you're very kind of left of centre. And I think many people on the left have not realised that change. So what I think that for me anyway, highlights is the fact that the old kind of tribalities of left and right have completely and utterly broken down and nothing exposed that more than, than Brexit, that you had uh, some people in the Tory party that wanted to remain, at least 50% of Labour Party voters wanted to leave, etc. And, and it, it exposed a, a truism of the last 40 years in, in Western politics. And, and I think it's this, is that what the right have done with Thatcher and Reagan at the vanguard is to win the economic argument. The economic construct of the Western world is a legacy of Thatcherism and Reaganomics, of decentralization, of denationalization, sorry. Arguably, there's been, been completely opposite in terms of the power of the state, but denationalization, it's that small um, share owner democracy, so what it's supposed to be trickle down economics. But what us on the left haven't realized is that actually we won the social argument. Mm. So you can have people who are politically uh, right of center who espouse good treatment of minorities. And, and also uh, gay marriage, civil partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. And that no British politician who w would be seen as sane if he stood up and said, we need to repatriate uh, all black Britons, 
which used to be said as late as the early 1980s. No politician, though many might believe it, um, is going to stand up and say that we need to roll back civil legislation on, on, on civil partnerships. You know, you've seen us on the fringes. So I, I don't think there's a single Conservative MP who would say that they would want to do that. There might be two or three who would want to roll back gay marriage or equal mm-hmm. marriage, as, as um, it was called. Um, but I mean, certainly several Conservative MPs I know who voted against gay marriage at the time, they've all said, well, I, I was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. Uh, and I regret doing it. And as I say, I can't think more than a handful would do that now. So I think you're absolutely right. Those arguments have been won. Coming out of World War II, Britain had been devastated. Prime Minister Clement Attlee basically began a welfare state. The government would help create jobs, would create housing, uh, public housing. The labor unions were given enormous power, and it got to the point where this was unsustainable. Britain had to go to the IMF for a loan in the 1970s, and she came... Hard to to fathom, right? The IMF was created for for countries devastated in World War II, smaller countries, not necessarily... African countries, not necessarily the yeah, And she came to power and basically said, we're not going to focus on a nanny state anymore. We're going to change it to personal responsibility, personal achievement. Now, a lot of what she did is controversial. A lot of the ways she did it controversial. It was very hard on the British people, particularly the poor people. And there's still today a divide between northern and southern England, where she broke the miners' strike in the north, and a lot of those communities never really recovered. But the English economy, the UK economy overall, has performed better. But I think what's gone wrong on the right is that Thatcherism, Reaganism, if you like, they have the, the, the Republicans and the Conservatives haven't actually developed a, a, a sort of a nuanced Thatcherism for today. Now, there are lots of things that Margaret Thatcher did, which no one, even on the left, would, would probably roll back. But we don't live in the 1980s anymore. We're in the 2020s. The world economy is very different. We have the challenge from China. We have globalization, which really wasn't a thing in the 1980s. And I don't think that right of center economics have really adapted to that in the way that they need to. And I think a lot of the things that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell were saying at the last election actually resonated with a lot of people. The the economy of work, sort of the, all the zero hours contracts, which I think has probably been exaggerated a bit to make an effect because only 2% of people actually work on zero hours contracts. But when people see intrinsic unfairnesses, um, uh, they want somebody in politics to address those. And I don't think that people on the right in the last 10 years have really done that to the extent that they need to. However, if you do seek to address those, you've got to do it in a reasonable way. And of course, the Labour Party at the last election, everyone thought was just so extreme that even a lot of Labour voters just couldn't bring themselves to vote Labour. And there were some good things that John McDonnell was saying, um, but they got drowned out by all the ridiculous um, spending promises that they made. I was at home in California at the time and at the time of the election. And I remember hearing one day, right, so we're going to nationalise the railways. I can, I'm so behind that. And that had been Labour Party doctrine uh, for, for some time to re-nationalise the railways. It, it, it's just ridiculous. You can't have two competing railway companies you know, running up and down the same line and the massively subsidised, et cetera, et cetera. Let's take them back into state ownership. Because it worked uh, so well when they were in state ownership, didn't it? And you're well, old enough, you're old but, enough but to remember. But you know what? They haven't been run well since either. This is the no, thing. I'm not, 
I'm not saying that they were privatized in the right way, but just because something wasn't done in the right way, and I remember, look, I was I was a transport lobbyist at the time, mm-hmm. and I, I had railway clients, and I was arguing with the Department of Transport and saying, this is ridiculous to separate the track and the trains. You've got to keep them together. This will not work. And it became so complicated with the franchising system that it, it inevitably wasn't going to be perfect. However, um, if you look at the quality of the rolling stock on the tracks nowadays, that would never have happened under nationalised ship and, and i think that this idea that if you if you renationalize the railways everything is going to be hunky-dory is oh no in in and that is not what i'm saying to, to to echo your point right of center economics doesn't reflect the fact that it's now 2020 i would say that nationalization renationalization of the railways which is in effect what we have now because of the covid night yeah. well, we have it anyway right we can't but, have it anyway because if you look at network rail is effectively a nationalized company yes it, we can't go back to a 1960s 70s model of, of nationalization but if we're looking at a, an integrated transport policy and we are looking at rebalancing the economy of the united kingdom so it's away from the southeast rail is going to be an important strategic but i'm not even talking about hs2 you know there needs to be a railway that goes from hull to liverpool there just does um etc we can reignite the economy in so many of the uk's regions if the government has a far-sighted view to rail you know so uh, and we can get people out of cars. Let's take the whole COVID and thing out of it just just for now and stuff. So let's say we're back into the old normal way where people feel comfortable going on public transport. That, that predicates that. If if we look at um, look look at that specifically as an issue, then then kind of like ro- roll this back. Um, where do you see this reimagining of right wing? economic thought coming from do we have a golden opportunity with the fact that literally the world has been turned upside down um, because of covid19 where that new ways of thinking from the right and the and the left will actually kind of coalesce because as i said you know we do kind of fundamentally have the nationalization of the of, of the railways now anyway um yeah so uh, we, we live we live in, in in a new world a new paradigm are there beacons of uh, economic thought on the right that recognise that, would you say? I, th- I think there are people who are capable of thinking the unthinkable, and that's what think tanks are there to do. Uh, and if you think back to the 1980s, you had the Centre for Policy Studies, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Adam Smith Institute. They were kind of doing Margaret Thatcher's thinking for her. And then she had individuals who would be feeding in fairly radical ideas. Now, she wasn't actually, believe it or not, a radical. She was very much a pragmatist. She believed in the art of the possible. There was no point in going down, um, uh, which is why she didn't nationalise the railways when she was prime minister. Um, that there were some things that she thought were just in the too difficult baskets. So you've got to be realistic in what is achievable. Now, there are, there are going to be a lot of opportunities after this crisis is over, assuming it is ever over, um, for refashioning all sorts of things. The world of work, for example. Mm. We, we know that having got used to working at home and employers having got used to having their employees at home and actually finding it works quite well, um, I think there's going to be all sorts of different ways of working. We're, we're doing this interview on Zoom. I'd never heard of Zoom before COVID-19. 
Um, people have got used to video conferencing. I've got used to doing interviews with people via this medium. It's, it's a very different feeling, um, but you it, it, you can do it. I always I paused a couple of my podcasts because I thought, well, I, d I can't do hour long interviews remotely, but I, I find that I can actually. And the fact that it is remote makes it in somehow a little bit more intimate. So sometimes you get a little bit more out of people than you might have done had they been sitting opposite you in a very sterile studio environment. Um, mm. I think that 12% 12 of people were used to home working before this started. 44% of us have now been working at home. Now, let's say that it ends up with 25% working from home regularly or all the time. Now, that means that employers are not going to need as big offices. That means that landlords are going to have to find some other use for those offices. That means that there could be more housing uh, or flats, um, or they could all be converted to flats. Now, if they're converted to luxury flats that uh, Russian and Chinese people buy and just keep empty, well, that's no good to anybody. So that is a challenge for the government to regulate that, so to ensure that that doesn't happen. That, the, that these extra flats are actually put out on the general housing market that normal people can buy. Now that's a very big challenge for government to do because particularly for a conservative government, you kind of you, you don't want to intervene too much in that kind of market, but I suspect that they're going to. So what we've got coming up, I think, is a much more interventionist right-wing conservative government. Now we've seen it already with the furlough program, the Siebel scheme, the bounce back loans, things that nobody would have ever thought that a conservative chancellor could even countenance. Um, it would have, I mean, as a counterfactual, somebody ought to write an article about what would have happened if Jeremy Corbyn had been prime minister in December and had gone through this. What would Labour have done any different to what the Conservatives have done at the moment? And I, in, in, in economic terms, and I suspect not an awful lot. Mm. So uh, it's far too early for me to sit here and say, well, I think this is going to happen in the economy. That's going to happen in the economy. But you, I hope that there's a massive unit in the Treasury and in all sorts of the different economic and political think tanks actually giving a lot of thought to this in, in different sectors of the economy to see how they will need to be rebalanced. I mean, you look at the retail sector, which we all know is, is going to come out of this in a very, very different form. Now, I think actually all this crisis will have done is to hasten what would have probably happened anyway, and there'll be a massive shakeout. And I mean, you look at the number of people who inevitably, very sadly, are going to lose their jobs at the end of this. Once the furlough scheme finishes, there will be a huge number of, of casualties. Well, what is going to be done for that group of people? Because they're going to be people who are still relatively young, economically active, but got nothing to do. And I think it's uh, the unemployment levels are probably going to make the unemployment levels of the 1980s. Um, look comparatively low. Um, now, we talk about 10% unemployment. Well, of course, France has had 10% unemployment or thereabouts for quite a long time. But we, we've got to work out how technology can actually help here. I mean, everyone talks about AI and how that's going to threaten the uh, world of jobs. We heard that in the 1980s about computerization, but that was going to create a huge amount of unemployment. What it actually did was create huge numbers of jobs. And you would hope that AI is going to do the same. So the next 10 to 15 years in the economy are going to be absolutely fascinating to watch because those, those countries that really come to grips with this are going to be the ones that succeed. 
And we have a great record in this country of um, innovation, of um, creating new products. We, we're less good at mar- making and marketing them. We've got to be good at those as well in the future. Um, n- never a true word was spoken. And um, I, one of the podcasts that is, I think, called uh, The Things That Made England, did an episode two episodes ago about the bank of england and how central it's been to the formation of modern england uh, without the bank of england you wouldn't have had the british navy they, they funded the british navy um but one of the criticisms of, of the bank of england goes to the very heart of your point that historically in the 18th century their loans for entrepreneurs which actually ignited the industrial revolution were all too short uh, American and German banks, which came into their fore about 30 years afterwards, all realized this and actually did longer loans. And then it's, it's not by, by accident that then in the 19th century, uh, the, the economy of Germany pipped England and then Britain, and then the 20th century has actually then been stronger. So it's syst- systemically, we have a problem in this, in this country with actually investing heavily and with marketing actually what we do, though innovation is actually kind of core to to the English and British spirit. One of the things which I'm excited about in the post-COVID world is the city. And I see, um, as somebody who, again, who who loves history, that arguably the nation state, in the form that we have it now, is only a construct of the last 400 years. And what we had before, which was much more decentralised and and on a European model based around region and cities is kind of where we're going to go to now. And I think that the internet is rapidly making us, uh, making that, that world um, a reality. Um, I feel very comfortable in, in London, uh, San Francisco, uh, Toronto, Manchester, Leeds. I, I, like, I like cities and I'm not unique in that. And I think one of the interesting things is going to be uh, what's going to happen with those retail spaces when, as you say, we come back and let's say we're going to have 10% unemployment because um, what the internet has done is is, it kind of destroyed things like British home stores. Many British uh, chains have just gone by the wayside um, because people are, are shopping more online. But people like city centres and they like the buzz and the uniqueness of them. And we're going to have a lot of retail spaces empty. And it's kind of interesting for me, uh, somebody spends a lot of time um, in the States, specifically, as I said before, in San Francisco, that their zoning laws are, are brilliant in that you can go down any high street and they're not all the same. They're not full of chains. And what city councils can do is stop Starbucks coming in and being on every high street. Because they said, no, 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 you have a Starbucks and it's a mar- it's three miles away. That's good. So you can actually have um, local, local, uh, local coffee shops. You can have local experiential uh, businesses. And I think there's going to be a massive place for local governance to, to look at replanning and rezoning of the British High Street because there's going to be the empty retail space there. And, and as you said, you know, that potentially there's going to be office blocks empty as well. You know, so I think this is potentially a really exciting time where we can just change our planning laws 
and not just say that this business space is for A, B and C, it's retail or it is uh, restaurants. We can say, no, we're going to stop large companies benefiting off the back of this economic collapse of, of the retail and restaurant sector. And, and saying that um, certain chain companies cannot come and dominate that space because ultimately we're going to end up with a with a, with a uni a uni look kind of high street. And well, we've already got that. We've that, 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 the ship has sailed on that. We've but, but no, but but we have an opportunity though, Ian, because many well, we do. But I, don't, I think you're looking at it from the the wrong angle. I mean, I'm, I'm great. I think it's great that you believe in deregulation. I'm glad we've won mm -hmm. that battle. Um, but I I, I think that i mean retail will increasingly move online and that is because people they if they know what they want to buy uh, they will go and buy it online because it's so much simpler i mean most people i don't think actually in or certainly and this is gross generalization but most men certainly do not enjoy going out on a three-hour shopping trip um so i mean i buy shoes online i would never have thought that i would have bought shoes online before but i found a company that made shoes that i liked that were quite cheap uh, quite stylish and now i've become imelda marcos um because and I, I used to buy like one pair of shoes a year if i really had to whereas now i sort of look on the website oh they've got a new one click buy that and it's that simple and i know that they'll fit because all the shoes are the same make. I buy suits online sometimes now. Again, unthinkable. It, it, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So the, only, the, the only reason why I disagree with you is because Silicon Valley is just south of San Francisco. You go to, you go to the Mission District in San Francisco. You go to Oakland. You go to Berkeley. You go to Portland. You go to Seattle, right? And, and there is a massive tech industry in Seattle. There's a ma the world's biggest one is just south of San Francisco, right? But people still shop. And I did say it, but I didn't expand upon it. It's experiential shopping. And I don't understand. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and America has blazed a trail on this. If you go to, I mean, I'm not so familiar with the West Coast. Um, although I remember the only time I've ever been to San Francisco, Fisherman's Wharf. I mean, what a great place to have an experience. Mm -hmm. um, Union Station in Washington, D.C., which is effectively a glorified shopping mall now. Um, but it's got this food court and all the rest of it. One of my favorite places and some uh, great cafes. That they had a, I, I don't know if you've been there, but they have this sort of central cafe, this massive sort of uh, hall right at the front. And it was one of my favourite places in the world. I could happily sit there for a couple of hours just sort of watching the world go by. Unfortunately, they've taken it away now, which is um, to be a great regret. Um, but yes, experiential shopping, you're right. And I think for even... And I mean, people I, still I'm need haircuts. You can't have your haircut done, done online. Well, and also it, what is... That's so not something that we really care about, is it? <laughs> <laughs> us, us personally, may, maybe not, but, but may, many people do. And it does surprise me um, looking at certain American cities, not all. This is so, you know, if you go to Houston, it is chains everywhere. So this is the intervention of local civic governance to specifically throttle back certain chains. And the, the, the vibrancy that it then brings to the high street is utterly amazing. There are grocery shops um, over there, and you and you could arguably say, well, you can get that delivered. The tech industry lives there, 
but it's a world away from saying that you know the the internet has kind of crushed everything. Yeah, so, but, but, but you, this is just a a, a, um, a pet a pet rant of mine. But also, um, I mean, you're you're a city boy. I'm not. I'm a country boy. I'm more interested in the small market towns because I don't want them to be which desert. exactly had this um, mark exactly had that model exactly. But the thing is that I don't think there has been enough innovation within local authorities to understand that um, in, in the 2020s and 2030s, niche is king. If you can develop a reputation for your town as being the town for books or the town for art or the town for, for food, I don't know what it is, mm. you will succeed. Margate, um, I don't know if you know Margate at all. Yes. Um, I remember going there as a seven-year-old on holiday with my parents, the only family holiday we ever had. And it was a shithole. It was, it was run down. The hotels were awful. It just looked awful. You go there now, and it, it is the centre of the arts of, of the southeast, and it's a fantastic place. And, and they've done that over a period of time. I mean, Tracy Emin comes from there. They, they've got this new Tate um, gallery there. Um, it, and they've just made it a destination, and that's what you've got to do. Make your place a destination. Hey, and why did it with books? Um, all sorts of coastal towns, which, um, I mean, are really run down, centres of high poverty. I mean, we, we always think about inner cities as areas of the biggest poverty in this country. It's just not true. Coastal towns, not one for six in that regard, or a lot of them do anyway. And they, they are the ignored um, poor centres of our society. Nobody talks about them. They're starved of investment. And everyone thinks of anything by the seaside as rather idyllic. Well, if only it were true. Ian, we, we've come, done a 360. We're ending up back at Brexit, aren't we, haven't we, basically? <laughs> the, the eastern coast of England, that hotbed of... Uh, Brexiteers and um, yes, in part. Well, yeah, and, and a, a lot of those towns voted for Brexit, not necessarily because they didn't like the EU, but because they thought, well, it can't get worse than this because we've been ignored all this time. So let's, let's make a statement and you can understand that. Immigration is one of the major issues fueling the Leave campaign. Brexit proponents say unchecked EU immigration into Britain is simply unsustainable. Leave voter Angie Cook so she was forced to close her transport business because cheap migrant labour drove down her competitors' prices. I believe that British people should have British jobs. I only employ English people because that's what I believe in. Cook says local housing, schools and healthcare are also feeling the strain of mass immigration. We're full. We can't take any more physically. There's no housing. There's nowhere for any of them to live. But other entrepreneurs, like farm owner Robin Buck, Say migration from the new EU states has only been good for business. It's enabled parts of our business to grow. These people who we, we have here are young and bright and healthy and they're, they're not going to be putting the same pressure on services as an average person in the UK and they're definitely contributing. In this English town, the European Union has brought sweeping change. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, we should probably start to wind this down. So I've done one of my pet peeves, which is I can never say the word uh, quickly, subsidiarity. See, subsidiarity, I can't say it. yeah. Which is, yeah. And which I believe is favorite word. Oh, which I believe is going to be the driving force of, of the, the 21st century. Uh, the, the weakening of this powers, some powers from the state coming down and some powers from the state actually going up, which is, uh, you know, let's say that we're an outlier when it comes, it comes to Brexit, at least that's, that's what I would say. We talked a little bit about the future. And why don't we talk about very quickly um, about now, just as we start to sign off. How has work changed for you? In, in the last three months of the COVID emergency? What have been the most palpable changes that you've had to do? You've talked about doing remote interviews, but mm. um, are you still going into the LBC studio um, every day? How exactly has your experience changed and how has it maybe changed your perspective on, on life? Um, I haven't been to the LBC studio since March the 16th. Um, I've been at home ever since then. I'm a type 2 diabetic, so in a so-called vulnerable group. And I don't anticipate going back for many weeks to come, if I'm honest. Um, I've actually, I feel slightly guilty saying this, but I've actually enjoyed lockdown. Um, uh, I'm lucky. My partner's here. My two dogs are here. Um, I've got a nice house and I can do things which I haven't had time to do for years and years. So I've actually enjoyed the last few weeks. I miss the interaction in the office. I miss, miss the gossip and all the rest of it. But um, but I know that a lot of people have really struggled, particularly people who live on their own. Maybe they're in a studio flat in the middle of a city and they've literally got four walls to look at for mm. 24 hours a day. And uh, we, we've been doing mental health hours and a lot of these people have rung in because they've, they've found themselves becoming quite anxious because of it. But of course, you're also going to find that people like me who have isolated for all this time, I mean, I'm not an anxious person. I've never had any mental health issues, or not that I've realised anyway. But the thought of getting on the train for the first time, wearing a mask, I don't mind admitting, I find quite a daunting thing to think about. Um, Now, what have I learned? Well, I've learned that I can do a good radio show from home. Um, My friends tell me that um, I sound a lot more personal. I mean, I always thought I did anyway. But inevitably, if you're broadcasting from your bedroom, it's going to sound a little different than if you're in a, in a studio with all the sort of gadgets and technology. Mm. I mean, I've got two laptops, a microphone, and 
a picture of my mother in front of me. I mean, that, that's all it is. And yet most people, if they don't know that I'm actually broadcasting from home in my bedroom, they, they wouldn't know the quality is really good. I think in over 50 programs, the line has only dropped twice. Um, I mean, there was one funny incident where, oh, I say funny, we were doing the mental health hour and we had a guy on talking about how he's thinking of taking his own life. I mean, obviously not funny. And uh, my line went down. And luckily I had a colleague, Emma Kenny, the psychotherapist with me. So it took me two minutes to dial back in and get the line up again. And she was sort of rabbiting on. So I thought, oh, excellent. So I just typed on the screen to my producer back. They didn't even know that I'd gone. So I found, I found that I was sort of almost superfluous. Um, but it, 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 is, it is a bit of a weird experience in, in, in some ways. And I don't want to do it forever in a day. Um, I look forward to going back into the studio because I, I like... I do like to see the whites of people's eyes when I'm interviewing them. Um, you, you can sense all sorts of things. I mean, I, I've got to do an interview with Willie Walsh from uh, British Airways or IEG this evening. Mm -hmm. And it's probably going to be quite a difficult interview in some ways because of what's going on with BA. I would much rather be able to interview him face to face than, than over what could be quite a dodgy FaceTime audio signal or, or, or something. Um, so, yeah, it's it's... I can't say it's been an experience that I would want to repeat necessarily because, I mean, who who wants to stay at home for three three months? I mean, I I literally have been up to the corner shop about seven or eight times to deliver Hermes parcels. I've developed a little political uh, mug business as a sideline, so I've been developing that. Um, but yeah, I I do miss I miss driving. I love driving, and I've literally driven maximum I've driven in the last three months is five hundred yards. So you get to the point where you think, well, what's the point of keeping the car at the moment? You might as well get rid of it. Um, and and how that will how that will all change, I, I don't know. I, I haven't been able to go. I've got a house in Norfolk, which I absolutely love. I haven't been able to go there for three months. Um, so, I mean, first world problems, eh? Just to chime in on the car thing, my car is 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 back back home in in California, and that's when I realised something serious was actually happening. Obviously being plugged into world news, I, I knew about this thing in, in Wuhan back in, I think early January, I, was, I don't quite think I can say December, or at least I, I, I realized it was a thing. And it was traveling down two weeks before I flew back to the UK uh, from Vallejo to, to San Francisco a journey that would take 45 minutes. It took me 25 because there was nobody on the roads. And that's when I said, ah, oh, no, this, this is going to visit us all. That was the first time. Um, last question to you. So this is all, this is fundamentally being a, co a conversation. And uh, it's not exactly that we are absolutely uh, politically and economically aligned but there's not that much of a distance between us really it's, it's, it's a case of emphasis really at, at points um but you did say that you voted for the brexit party the lib dems and even green goes without saying that of course you voted conservative before could you ever see a situation whereby you put your ex next to uh the party of the people sir um, <laughs> You mean the Conservative Party? Um, no, not not uh, the party of people <laughs> with uh, vested money interests. <laughs> but, but, 
No, you see, you're looking, th looking at it through the prism of the 19th century there. Um, if you look at Conservative voters now, the Conservative Party at the last election got 47% of the working class vote. How much did the Labour Party get? 35%. So don't, don't give me that the Conservative Party... I, I said that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Tongue yeah. But um, it, just, it was interesting when you went through that list of parties that you have uh, for whatever local political reasons and stuff you've actually voted for. But hmm. could you see yourself voting for the Labour Party ever? Well, never say never, but I, I can't really concede that I ever would. Um, I mean, Keir Starmer, I think, is, has made a really good start as Labour leader. Um, and I think I, I can't really see how he can win the next election, but we, we don't know what the circumstances will be at the time. We don't know what um, is going to befall Boris Johnson between now and then. Um, I was never a, a fan of Boris Johnson. Um, anybody who listens to my radio show can tell you many occasions when I've been incredibly critical of him. So I'm not somebody, I, di I did vote Conservative at the last election because I, mean, I certainly wasn't going to vote Labour and I certainly wasn't going to vote for the, for the Liberal Democrats um, when their main policy was to ignore the vote of the British people in the referendum and, and get us back in. So um, it was quite clear what I would vote in the last election. Now, um, I think it's highly unlikely I could ever vote for Keir Starmer. Um, there, there are too many fundamental Labour policies that I just don't agree with. People do tend to vote on a more presidential style now, sort of vote for the person. I mean, it's always been the way to an extent. It's why Margaret Thatcher uh, did so well electorally. They were voting for her rather than the Conservative Party. And at the last election, actually, a lot of former Labour voters were voting for Boris. They were not voting Conservative. Now, um, I quite like Tony Blair. I, I remember in 1997, on the day, of the day after the election, at dawn, I was driving home and I stopped my car on the embankment because I could hear all this racket from the new festival hall. Things can only get better. Tony Blair saying, a new dawn has broken, has it not? And there was a genuine feeling of excitement. And even I was slightly swept along with that. And Tony Blair was a prime minister that I, I had no problem with. I mean, I could agree with him on an awful lot of things. Now, whether I could ever say that about Keir Starmer, I think the jury's out on that. But I don't mind admitting he's made a much better start than I thought he would. I think he is a bit of a charisma-free zone, which Tony Blair wasn't. And I think that might turn out to be his Achilles heel in that he's got to develop. Uh, he's got to, he's got to get it. You know what I mean by it. Nobody can define what it is, but Tony Blair had it. Margaret Thatcher had it. Ian Duncan Smith did not have it. Gordon Brown did not have it. Because, and people relate to it. Um, and I don't know whether you can develop it but Keir Starmer kind of needs to. Mm. Um, couldn't agree with you more. I, I have this friend of mine who is a nurse, um, occupational therapist, sorry, uh, deep, in the, uh, deep into the NHS and the, the values and how great the NHS is. Labour Party voter all of her life. I went into her office once and there was a cutout. This was three years ago, cut out picture of Boris Johnson. And I went, well, what's that doing there? She went, I just like him. Yeah. I just like him. And I learned such a lesson there. And my worry about Keir Starmer is exactly that. I think he's obviously incredibly competent. You know, everybody's been saying he's got this forensic mind. Let's put that to one side. But if the rise of Trump 
and Boris tells us anything is that how much you call it it I'd also call it let's call it what it is celebrity and entertainment we actually do want from our leaders not all of our well, leaders it's, not it's all charisma, of it's actually charisma that's well, what it is I, I think I think if we did a, a Venn diagram there's a massive a massive overlap you, you are right there, there is there is charisma there, there, there is the element of that but the also that in this media fuel driven age that I believe there's a certain level of celebrity but not not for all politicians all the yeah. time and you can I mean, make a very you, strong if, argument if you, if you, you think make, about you it make a really Boris, strong argument for saying that in 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 these covid times when we've had to lean on the backs of experts that actually the countries that have done it well are all the countries that have leaders with no charisma angela merkel you know etc etc well then again justin trudeau's got charisma anyway maybe we come to a point where we actually properly fundamentally disagree and it's somewhat of a shame then that i'm about well, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you think about it boris first came to public prominence when he did have i got news for you and i mean that that was when he first became a bit of a celebrity and yet yes it is a bit it is celebrity mm -hmm. but it, it's i mean you can't can you be a celebrity without charisma i suppose you can um but most celebrities have charisma. I remember when I was uh, standing for Parliament, Boris Johnson came and did a fundraiser for me in North Norfolk. And naturally, he got the wrong train, so he was like late. And we walked into this lunch where there was about 200 Conservative members. Um, I mean, each paid, I don't know, 30 or 40 quid to come. Um, and I thought we were going to get lynched because we were an hour and a half late and they, they, they wanted their lunch. Not a bit of it. We walked in, up they stood and cheered him. And I thought if this was anyone else, we wouldn't get away from this. And that is a remarkable talent to have. Mm -hmm. And it can cover up all sorts of fundamental weaknesses in your personality. And that is exactly Which then how get Boris exposed when there's a global pandemic. And well, maybe. I mean, I, I mean, let's not get into that because we'll be here for another two hours. Um, I, I, I think in many ways I can blame him, I can blame them for some of the mistakes that have been made, but by no means all of them. No, 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 no. I, I think that's in, in, incredibly fair. This did take the whole world by surprise. Yeah, but it's the difference between maybe reacting 10 days earlier, um, you can count it, yeah. in, in the amount of deaths. That, that's the thing. No, but, you, you, are, you are right on that, and we are going to risk getting into a long debate here. But if, if the if the if Sage tells you that actually no, we need to wait, Prime Minister. And I mean, if it is true that they were guided by that advice, and I have no reason to believe that they weren't. Mm. And if you look at the evidence, Dominic Cummings was at that crucial Sage meeting on the seventeenth of March, and he actually said to them, "Why aren't we going to lockdown now?" So if it is true that they were just following the advice from science, and one of the things we've learned from this, by the way, is that science is an art, not a science, um, which, I mean, it really comes a revelation to me. I'm not sure where you apportion blame there. You could take the argument, well, the buck stops with the prime minister. He's the one. He could overrule the scientists. But what if he had done that? And it turned out that we didn't need to go down into lockdown that early, and it cost huge amounts of economic damage. So, I mean, in a way, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. But I agree with you. It was a week or 10 days too late. And I want to know exactly why that decision was made and who made it. And at the moment, we can make our own 
suppositions about that, but we don't know exactly why. But I and think I that, was the, that was the, the biggest decision that, that was got wrong. And Ian, I would say at the heart of that decision is probably people who believe that laissez-faire capitalism and the, the government having less of a role uh, in society is at the heart of that. But that's just what I would say, sir. Well, there we do. There we do disagree. I don't think that. I don't think that decision had anything to do with laissez-faire economics, capitalism, or whatever. It was a judgment, and someone, a group of people, or an individual somewhere got that decision wrong. And in the end, we all deserve to know why and who. That's fair. And I said what I said, half believing it, but also half tongue in cheek, because nobody in the last hundred years has been through anything like this. We did have a couple of scares coming out of China in the early 2000s, which didn't hit our shores. So you understand that that response to go, mm, yeah, let's just wait and see. But but this was real this time. So yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's part of the reason why countries like South Korea have done so much better than us because yes. they kind of have been through it before they, they had all the test and tracing thing in situ we, we didn't we didn't even know what it was really uh, until comparatively late and look of course there will always be international comparisons but i, I saw a league table today uh, of deaths where they, they were actually stripping out the number of deaths that were just due to covid19 where there were no other pre-existing conditions and out of the forty thousand deaths so far how many do you think were just down to COVID-19? It's going to be very small. 1,800. Now, I don't know how our system of counting deaths compares with other countries, but it would be interesting to get the comparison from other countries for that as well. Yeah. It's been apparent from, from the very start that the vast majority of people who succumb to this this seemed to be the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of their health, as yeah. opposed to the underlying reason. That, there is utterly no den denying that. And it's only going to be with, uh, with hindsight we're going to be able to, to work out how virulent this disease actually was and what approach should have been taken. And of course, when the next pandemic happens, it'll be different. So we'll learn the lessons of this one, but we'll be fighting, yeah. you know, just like generals are always fighting the last war. Ian Dale, my new best friend. It's been lovely to have you on the show and, and the first one where um, we could actually see the person we're having a conversation with. Um, but just before you go, sir, I need to say this to you, listener. Very obviously, uh, Mid-Atlantic is slowly changing. You can now see, see me and see the person I'm speaking to. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go on to midatlanticshow.com and click on the speak pipe button. That gives you a right of reply you can uh, put your views uh, basically onto the show and we will address it in a future episode. Very obviously, um, we're always going to be strong on US and now Canadian politics as well as UK politics. So um, you can reply to maybe something that I have said or Ian has said on this show, or you can just talk about your experiences to do with the uh, George Floyd uh, situation or the COVID-19 one. But go on to midatlanticshow.com, hit that speak pipe button to leave us um, a voicemail message. You can find me on Twitter. I'm not very good on Twitter. Uh, fundamentally, I just talk about the arches really and just have no punctuation in my tweets. Very little politics, funnily enough, but I am at Royfield on Twitter, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Ian, where can people find you? 
Um, can I just thank you, by the way, for introducing me to SpeakPi, because I now use that on my For The Many podcast, which I do with the former Labour Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, who you've had on your Archers podcast, which is how we know each other. Um, and I found out the other day that 8% of our listeners on For The Many are in America, and 20% of our listeners listen throughout the world, which I was astonished, given that we generally talk about British politics. Um, so have a listen to my podcast, if you'd like to, For The Many. I also do an interview podcast called Ian Dale All Talk, and on Twitter, I'm at Ian Dale, and I'm bloody brilliant at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play you are. You're better than me. <laughs> okay, folks, that's us saying, saying goodbye. Um, ju- just complete just before I go. If you're into English culture, the things that made England, I've just done a, the latest shows about youth cultures, the peculiar reason why England created so many youth cultures, whether it's mods, rockers, goths, new romantics, they're literally all English, with the exception of the hippies, actually. Um, so go listen to that. And uh, take care, look after yourselves, be good. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.